The year was one of violent labor troubles and strikes. San Francisco's general strike gripped the city in a death-like clutch. A gasoline shortage stopped almost every wheel in town. Everyone walked or stayed at home. Serious clashes claimed many victims. Business was paralyzed and hunger threatened the city. While an auto accessory worker strike in Toledo, state guardsmen had to resort to tear gas, lead and cold steel to curb the temper of the strikers. Spurred by radical agitators, tear gas and knockout gas in a stifling barrage, which turned the Ohio City streets into an amazing scene of conflict. In Minneapolis, a truck driver strike was climaxed by severe riots and fights between the strikers and the police with many casualties. Warfare in the streets, civic strife at its worst. Welcome to Labour Days, a podcast about trade union issues and labour history. I'm Ed Mustill, joined as usual by Daniel Randall and Ellie Clark with producer Liam. We're a year old, it's yeah. our 12th episode. Wait. Yeah, it is. We made it. <laughs> but it's also a dark, dark day in the history of the podcast. <laughs> because after a year of uh, ceaseless lobbying, badgering, and I Tantrum would suggest... Out, perhaps even outright bullying, <laughs> some would say... <laughs> Daniel is finally now able to do an episode about the Minneapolis Teamsters strike. (laughs) Over the last year, we've looked at a lot of contemporary struggles like the Pitch House Cinema Workers, the McDonald's strikes, and we've looked at historical disputes ranging from Grunick in the 70s, the 1912 New York Waiters strike, some lesser known disputes. And we've looked at broad historical issues like how trade unions responded to the Russian Revolution, how unions have taken up environmental issues, and how unions have been portrayed on film and TV screens. Uh, if you if this is the first episode you're listening to, I uh, strongly recommend, obviously, that you go back through our back catalogue and, and catch up. Um, Particularly because I think the, the general consensus is the tra- trajectory of quality has been in decline. So the, well, the better ones are at the beginning. But it's your job to <laughs> it's your job to arrest that that trend. <laughs> this month, um, we've also been joined by some great guests. Um, um, without too much ego, I think we can say that we've built up a, a modest, uh, dedicated listenership uh, on both sides of the Atlantic. Yes, indeed. Yeah. I was looking at our um, SoundCloud analytics the other day, and um, there's some really incredible places that people are listening from all over the world. And then you can get a breakdown city by city. Um, but within London, it breaks it down like district by district. Mm-hmm. So the like top three cities are like, uh, or as they appear on the list, the top three cities are like, Tottenham. Uh, of course like, it's Harrogate. Of like, course it's Harrogate. <laughs> it, yeah, it's like, it's like, it goes like Tottenham, but then it's even more specific, like Tottenham, Wood Green, and then the third one is like, like, you know, Toronto or That's something. That's just everybody in this house listening <laughs> to the yeah. podcast. The, the the socialist movement breaking out of its North London, uh, <laughs> North London base to Toronto. Um We've also uh, we've also had a bit of a presence in the real world. We did a forum uh, with uh, Yorkshire and Humber TUC um, with uh, young trade unionists. Um, we're hoping to have a, a bit more of a real world presence with a couple of events in the in the coming months as well. So uh, we'll obviously uh, keep you updated uh, as and when that sort of stuff happens. Um, as always, let us know what you're getting up to in the real world as well. You know, drop us a line if you've got a struggle that you want us to to sort of big up. We're we're happy to do that. 
um, or, or to or to analytically dissect the organisational strategy of. We're, yeah, that's more. That's really more what <laughs> what we're about. Um, we've tried to make some perhaps lesser known uh, episodes, individuals, or struggles from labour history better known. Uh, connect discuss- discussions of labour history to issues of organisation and strategy facing us today. Um, and throughout all the episodes so far, we've attempted to make the case for the, the centrality of class and workplace organisation in socialist politics. And also, you know, broadly speaking, what, what we would consider a kind of rank and fileist approach to, to trade unionism. Uh, thanks to everyone who's, who's listened or contributed, all the guests that we've had over the, over the last year. Um, and we'll, uh, we'll crack on with uh, episode 12. Okay, so uh, as Ed mentioned, uh, the the main bulk of uh, uh, today's episode is going to be a, a sort of presentation about um, Farrell Dobbs' classic book, uh, Teamster Rebellion, about the strikes and organising activity of the, the Minneapolis Teamsters in 1934, which if you've listened to any of the other episodes of the podcast, you'll know I have indeed been uh, been, been lobbying for, and I might talk a little bit about why in particular we're, we're doing this just now later. But just uh, at the top of the show to... to uh, bring you up to date on a bit of news, I guess. Um, a- as we record, the the lecturers' strike in uh, pre nineteen ninety two universities in Britain is is still probably the headline news in in labour movement terms. And as we record, UCU members, members of the the university and college union, are currently voting on whether to accept a proposal from the employer, which is effectively endorsed by their union leadership, that would retain the status quo of their pension arrangements for a year pending a review. Uh, Many rank-and-file activists and branches have argued that this is simply postponing rather than actually defeating the attack and are mobilising for a no vote. Uh, We should give a particular shout-out at this point to um, Rianne Keyes, who's a UCU activist um, at Exeter University, who's prominent in that rank-and-file campaign to keep the dispute alive, and I think it's fair to say has been one of our podcast's most ardent supporters. So, um, thanks for all the promotional work you've been doing, Rianne. Um, we're really pleased and honoured that you found the podcast useful and that you've shared it with your colleagues and fellow strikers and we wanted to wish you best of luck with your campaign. In our last episode, we mentioned a university worker strike in Kenya and there's been a video doing uh, the rounds recently of some strikers looking to be having an absolute whale of a time on the picket line and that video you can check out on our Twitter. So there's a nice parallel there with the UCU strike um, where workers have obviously made an effort to make picketing enjoyable and empowering experience rather than the kind of dull and tokenistic affair that it can sometimes unfortunately be. And the issue of empowering and effective picket lines segues us nicely into our main feature of today's show, as that's one of the features um, of the story that we're going to be telling you today. So without any further ado, I think we should jump straight into it and let's hear about Teams the Rebellion. Oh, go on then. <laughs> so, um, Daniel, would you like to explain particularly for maybe for listeners in Britain where it's a kind of unfamiliar word? Who or what is a teamster? Uh, sure. Well, um, a teamster basically, for the purposes of the story we're going to be telling today, is a, is a truck driver mm-hmm. and people involved in, in, I guess, what we would call sort of haulage and distribution um, as, as drivers. The, the use of the term teamster as a word for that job originates, it, would, it used to mean a person who drove a team of animals, you know, o- o- oxes or horses dragging carts around, right? So... That's the origin of the, the word, uh, that, that's, that's the kind of provenance of the, of the word teamster to denote um, truck driver. Uh, as we'll see, the workers involved in the strikes that we're going to be talking about 
weren't just drivers, but people involved in sort of ancillary aspects of really what we would what we would today call the sort of distribution and logistics industry, basically. So there's an interesting parallel in the story we're going to be telling with some of the issues, certainly that we looked at in our interview with with Kim Moody about yeah. um, the sort of strategically significant nature of like logistics and distribution. Uh, in industries and forms of work to, to kind of capitalist economic functioning. So that was a very uh, roundabout way of answering a very simple question, which is like, um, <laughs> teams as a truck drivers. And so the union that we're talking about is the international brotherhood of teamsters well it isn't just the international brotherhood of teamsters it's actually the full the full name of the union which is which is rather wonderful uh the, the full name of the union at the, the, the heart of this story is the international brotherhood of teamsters chauffeurs stablemen and helpers um so you can see it's a it's a union that has its origins really quite far back in history mm. um even further back than 1934 when uh you know there was still a sort of semi-agricultural aspect mm. to, to some of the work these people were doing but yeah um st- commonly referred to as as the ibt the international mm. brotherhood of teamsters or just the teamsters Union, or just yeah. the teamsters yeah. union indeed and and our story focuses on one specific local um uh, of the ibt um most listeners will probably know that uh in the american labor movement a local is roughly analogous to what we would call in the British labour movement a branch, but not entirely analogous. Um, and in, in some ways, it's almost more accurate to think about a local or the, or the local at the centre of this story as a kind of small independent union, of, you know, a small kind of discrete union affiliated to a sort of larger union centre. Um, and traditionally in, in, in American, the American labour movement, in you know, many locals do do have much more sort of autonomous life um, than a branch might in the British labour movement. And, and, and indeed, one of the features of the story is about the attempts of the local to assert its autonomy against attempts from the sort of central IBT leadership to clamp down on that for kind of conservative reasons. Mm. So we're talking about kind of... So it's it's mid thirties, right? Early, early mid thirties, yeah. right? It's it's kind of depression era America. There's a lot of kind of other sort of militant actions that went on in that in that period. Um, it's is it the American Midwest? Is that right? Yeah. So it's it's Minneapolis in Minnesota, mm. um, and the period's important because um, it is a period of kind of labor movement recomposition and revival. Um, you know, working class struggle starting to revive after the ravages of the depression, um, as as the economy starts to recover. There's a kind of kind of slight economic uptick, and which which brings with it some 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 renewed working class self assertion. And the the Minneapolis Teamsters strikes. So there's there's three strikes in the course of 1934 that Farrell Dobbs's book Teamster Rebellion tells the story of. Um, these strikes, along with um, a number of other disputes, but um, crucially, strikes in Toledo and San Francisco in the same year of auto workers, and then a couple of years later of auto workers in Flint, Michigan, form part of a really significant period of, of recomposition and renewal uh, in the American labor movement, which in some ways is kind of comparable to the new unionism <laughs> period in Britain, in that it really does like um, shake things up massively, and it's, and it's out of this period that. Um, the Congress of Industrial Organisations 
is formed and ends up splitting from the American Federation of Labour, which was the kind of mm. main, the kind of equivalent of our TUC. I think the point you made uh, earlier as well about there's this sort of, there's this rearing of class struggle when things are starting to get slightly better economically is a really important point because you do have like a, a lot of schools of thought that seem to believe that things have to be like yeah. Mad Max before workers will do anything about their conditions. But historically, over and over again, we've seen that that's not true, that actually when workers are in slightly better conditions than say like the Great Depression, that's when things start to move around. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, I think that's definitely right. And I think that you know, you do still encounter those views on the left that are sometimes called accelerationist. The you know the idea that we should sort of be in favour of things getting, things getting really as, shit. as worse as they yeah. possibly can because when workers are at their most immiserated, then they'll realise the system's terrible and fight back. But as history shows, the opposite tends to be the case. Mm. So we've got lo- the local, the local five seven four. That's in, right, yeah, in yeah, Minneapolis, yeah. also known as the General Drivers Union. Yeah. So just give us a bit of an overview of like uh, some of the people involved in that local. Like, where did they come from? What sort of jobs were they doing? Uh, what was their deal? Well, I mean, maybe just before talking about some of the individuals, it's worth sort of setting the scene in terms of the class struggle in Minneapolis itself and the the, the organisational condition in which this local was in, because. What, what the story is, one of the things that the story is about is how a basically moribund, like dead bit of labour movement organisational infrastructure was completely transformed in a space of a, a very short space of time um, through, through the key role of particular individuals. But, but to sort of understand that, one needs to know a bit of the background. And Minneapolis had, um, but, but like the labour movement in Minneapolis had been crushed, basically. Um, Clastral was at an incredibly low ebb. There hadn't been a successful, there'd been a like, very low level of strikes and there hadn't been a successful strike for like decades um, in Minneapolis. And the town was, I don't, I don't think it's an over-exaggeration to so say that the town was basically run by um, a body called the Citizens Alliance, which was sort of, I guess the best way to think of it is if you imagine a cross between like, a, a sort of citywide branch of the Confederation of British Industry plus the kind of politics of something like the Taxpayers Alliance right. but armed. So, <laughs> so, so part, part, part Employers Association, part political party, part paramilitary organisation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, kind of. And and they, they, re- like, they didn't run the city in terms of like directly standing candidates for public office under their own name, but they exerted an enormous amount of political and economic control over life you know, over sort of social and economic life in Minneapolis and uh, virulently anti-union mm. and, and their control was a sort of key element of, of, of the, the class struggle being at an incredibly low ebb. So the, the story of the book starts in um, early 1934 and in late 1933, local 574 of the IBT, the General Drivers Union, had 75 members. Um the IBT nationally had around 80,000 members. So this is a really tiny branch of, of a not particularly large union. And by the end of the story, um, the local has thousands and thousands and thousands of members. So within the, within the space of a year, the membership absolutely explodes. So you asked about who are some of the individuals in the story. We had a bit of a discussion in our last episode about kind of individual versus collective approaches to historiography. 
and the relative merits of both. And I think this is a really good example. This story is a really good example, actually, about how you have to have both approaches. That it's a, it's very much a collective story. It's not about people being, it's not about people being being led or manipulated in a sort of commandist way. But at the same time, it's a series of events that wouldn't have happened without the kind of dedicated activity and commitment of particular individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, probably about six or seven minutes after you actually asked me the question, I'm now, <laughs> going, to, I'm now going to answer it. So. The, 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 sto- the story we're going to tell and the, and the story that's sort of told in the book um, is from the perspective of Farrell Dobbs, who was a um, worker in a, a coal yard. And, and the like, coal yards were a key part of the sort of trucking industry. That was one of the main things Teamsters were driving around. It was coal. Um, and the other kind of key individuals, I guess, the sort of heroes of the story, along with Farrell Dobbs, um, were... Uh, three brothers from uh, the Dunn family, uh, Miles, Ray and Grant Dunn, and Carl Skogland, uh, who was a Swedish migrant worker. Um, There are a number of individuals who also play a really important role, um, including, uh, just to name but a few of them, Farrell Dobbs' wife, Marvel Scholl, Ray Rainbolt, who's a Sioux Native American, who actually went on to be one of the leaders of the locals union defense guard which was their kind of anti-fascist wing which we talked about a lot in the, the episode we did on anti-fascism um so uh, there's a whole number of other kind of characters featuring the story but i think it's fair to say that the dunn brothers carl scoglin and, and farrell dobbs are, are, of, are of particular significance and and in the and in the very first place the dunn brothers and carl scoglin because um they were members of uh, an organization called the communist league of america which was a very young organisation. It was a group of Trotskyists who'd um, split or rather been expelled from the Communist Party of the USA um, for supporting Trotsky, for opposing Stalinism. CLA was led by um, James Cannon, Max Shackman and Martin Aburn. Carl Scoglin and the Dunn brothers are members of the, the Minneapolis branch of this organisation, the Communist League of America. Um, they're people who have quite a long history uh, in... Uh, rank and file labor movement and workplace organizing um, and, and and they kind of realize uh, that although um, this local is, is kind of moribund it has the potential to catalyze a, a significant revival in uh, class struggle and in and in labor movement organization in the city if it's kind of activated in the right way so did they did they were they, were they in the teamsters union because of the jobs that they themselves were doing or did they kind of choose to like get those jobs in order to organize that there, particular union there was a, there was a bit of both so some some of the people involved um got jobs in coal yards sort of for the purposes mm. of, of doing this you know so, so, something that in the, the american labor movement is referred to as salting um uh, and 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 some of the people involved were sort of already working as teamsters so there was right. it was a there was a combination of both but there was a kind of collective decision on the part of these CLA members that um, this potential existed and they sort of set about, you know, attempting to undertake it. Right, so you've got these guys, these like revolutionary socialist activists in Minneapolis in this one local of this one union, early 1934, they've decided to sort of embark on an organising drive. What do they do and how do they do it? Um, so... 
they they, they launch a campaign and eventually a strike um, d- demanding negotiations with coal industry employers in the first instance, the one of the main employers of Teamsters in Minneapolis, on a whole number of issues. And what's significant about the approach is that, and this is something I think we'll come back to throughout the discussion we're going to have today, is that it's offensive. Um, it wasn't about waiting for an employer to do something and then try and stop the attack from happening or responding to some proposed cut or um, uh, action from the employer. It was about taking the front foot, um, and it was uh, there was a whole there's a whole kind of preliminary struggle that needs to be fought in order to kind of win the right for the union local to do this, and that involves some kind of conflict and tension with the sort of IBT centre. Um, and there's there's discussions which again we might return to about the sort of who's allowed to join the local and what kinds of workers it's allowed to organise. Um, but this campaign is launched. Um, they do succeed in in uh, organising a strike on the basis of demanding negotiations around this sort of offensive charter of demands um, that they've uh, that they've issued and the kind of big prize that's really at the forefront of of, of their minds and of the campaigning is. Uh, for union recognition to kind of win mm. to win collective bargaining rights, um, and the first strike uh, begins on February the seventh, and in the course of it, the workers, um, you know, and again the the, the leadership of, of the Dunn brothers and, and Scotland and the CLA is pretty central in this to develop militant and, and extremely effective picketing tactics. Um, the use of sort of mass flying picket squads, which Dobbs in the book describes as. Um, a new picketing technique developed through rank and file initiative during the heat of action. And in the intro, Ellie talked about the university workers strike in Kenya that we circulated a video of and, and the picket lines on the UCU strike. And I think that's something from this story that definitely has real resonance for our experience today. I'm sure a lot of us who've been on strike will have experienced, unfortunately, picket lines as um, perhaps quite tokenistic affairs. There's a couple of you like standing some way off to the side of the entrance of the workplace, shuffling your feet, maybe... Yeah giving out the odd leaflets, the odd passerby, but there's no real attempt to make the experience of picketing A, enjoyable, B, empowering, and C, most importantly, actually effective at like disrupting production um, in the workplace, which is, of course, the, the point, point of a picket of line. Yeah. That's the point of a strike. That's the point of a picket line. Um, so I think that's something really, um, really resonant and, and very vital for our contemporary experience that, that we can take from this. Um, is about you know the tactics they developed. So, so so what they did just 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 to give a sense of it is they had it's quite incredible really when you consider that like t- how basic the telecommunication technology was back then. Um, they had sort of communication networks. So they had a, they had a, a, a picket line presence at every workplace, but then a communication network directing sort of flying picket squads to go and picket out any workplaces where bosses were attempting to move scab coal through, driven by scab drivers, so you could beef up the presence where it was most needed at a time it was most needed. And and the key, the, again, the key thing there is about the idea of the strike and the picket line as about a, an expression of and leveraging of workers' power in order to disrupt production rather than the kind of model most of us are used to where strikes are, re- like, strikes and picket lines are sort of protests. Yeah, it's like going on a demonstration. Yeah, ra- ra- rather than... You're sort of leveraging your power as a as a worker to, to disrupt the production process. Yeah. But so in order to do this, though, they must have had a lot of people. So have they already gone from having like the seventy five member? Have they already recruited like a lot of people by this time? Yes. Yeah, so or are, so, are they kind of using the strike as a means to bring people into the union? Well, the, at the well, same the, time, the, the the build up to the the build up to the February strikes, so the period between so as I say, like late nineteen thirty three, seventy five members. 
the period between then and the February strike uh, is uh, a kind of preparatory period where um, the, the strike's been prepared, the demands are formulated. And that's a lesson as well that, you know, unions grow when they fight. Yeah. So the kind of recruitment and organising, quote-unquote, model that exists in uh, a, a lot of the labour movement today, certainly in Britain, which is, which is really a, a recruitment model rather than an organising model, is sort of about getting people into the union almost, almost kind of for its own sake, mm. rather than a sort of instrumentalist, if you like, concept of union membership, which is about you join a union to do something, to yeah. fight, to, to, to use the union as an instrument to change your conditions. And that was the concept that the Dunn brothers and, and Cole Scogland and, and, and others who they were working with um, went about went about their organising with. So, so, so with that conception of organising, they are able to... Um, they are able to, to 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 get people into the union, and uh, and, and build it. And by by sort of March April, so shortly after the February strike, um, membership is up to three thousand. So from seventy five in late nineteen thirty three, through the course of this sort of preparatory organising campaign, and then the strike in February, the membership. Um, absolutely explodes and they must have had to order loads more IBT stress toys for head <laughs> office yeah stress rulers pens yeah. like shit lanyards yeah. yeah um and it's and it's after it's after the february strike that um farrell dobbs himself joins the cla and you know i don't i don't intend as much as i would like it for this episode <laughs> to be a discussion about sort of history of American Trotskyism or, or, or even... That's uh, another podcast that's... that you've got <laughs> br- brewing away in the back of your mind. Um, in that, yeah, now that you've let me off the leash with this one, <laughs> I, I have to lobby for the next one. Um, or even particularly uh, about the sort of the role of a, of a kind of revolutionary centre in a, in, a, in a broad dispute, although I think we should, we should come back to that. But there is a, a really, what I find quite an affecting scene in um, the book where... Dobbs relates, uh, he kind of talks about himself approaching the Dunn brothers mm-hmm. in the yard and, and sort of saying, you know, I hear, I hear you guys are communists. And they're a bit standoffish at first. They sort of say, who wants to know? Because you would and, in 1930s yeah, America. Yeah, yeah, you would. Um, but but, he, but Dobbs, you know, he's seen their activity in the, in the organising drive, in the strike, and he, and he kind of says, I want to know what you know. I want, mm. I want, to, yeah. I want to be able to do what, what you've done. Doesn't he say, well, what was it? Well, uh, well, I figure if you're communist, I want to be one too. Yeah. Like, but, um, I mean, I don't know if I'm just making this up. And again, I think Daniel's right. We shouldn't get too into, even just like the kind of personal stories. But um, I might be making this up, but don't they basically tell him to back off a bit? Aren't they like, you're, you're sort of, a, you're a kid, like watch, learn, figure things out and then join? Or have I just completely made that up? They were, they were <laughs> I mean, they were certainly serious about their recruitment strategy and uh, joining their organisation wasn't something they wanted people to do lightly. And later on, uh, Bill Brown, who's one of the other um, worker activists and who's, who's quite central to the, to the sort of leadership of the local as it develops Dobbs talks about how after the strike they sort of discuss the prospect of joining with him and they kind of decide probably best that he doesn't they sort of mutually decide that okay it's best for us just to maybe work together so they they do have um, they do have quite a sort of serious attitude to um, to membership Dobbs does Dobbs does join and I think maybe just to say one more thing on this and then you know, possibly draw a line under it. Like whatever your politics are, and um, 
you know, unfortunately, we're, we're not under any illusions that the entirety of our listenership are, 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 are Trotskyists. But whatever your politics are, um, I think the, the abiding lesson of this aspect of the story in particular, the role of the CLA, is that any, any workers' victory, I would argue, requires that kind of equivalent central element in the sense of a group of people who, who have an absolute dedication and commitment to a struggle and seeing it through and who come together to pool their collective knowledge and experience to work out the best, dire- the best direction for that struggle, developing strategies of which they hope to persuade the broader movement. And, and the other two strikes in 1934, San Francisco strike and the Toledo strike, also have that element um, played by very different political forces, it must be said, in one case by Stalinists in the Communist Party of the USA, and in the other case by supporters of um, uh, a group led by um, a, a rather sort of idiosyncratic character called A.J. Musty, who was a sort of radical pacifist socialist preacher who, who, who had his own... Um, who had his own socialist group. Distant relative of mine. Yeah, when I'm, yeah, yeah. When I'm not calling you Ed the Brain, I'm calling you the good Reverend Musty. The good Reverend Musty, yeah. yeah. Um, so, so, you know, all three of the, the great strikes of 1934 have that sort of central element. In the Minneapolis case, it's the Trotsky CLA, and um, in the other cases, it's it's the, the CP and, and, and AG Musty's group. Um, and I do think that that, that shows um, how important... Um, having that that kind of core not in a not in a sort of manipulative or you know invisible pilots sense to to, to borrow a term from uh, from Bakunin or one, one which he used positively um, it should be noted um, not not in that sense but in the sense of having a, 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 a body of people who kind of act as a, um, a, a, a as, as both a brain a sort of brains trust and a, um, an element in which both political and organisational strategies for a struggle can be kind of thrashed out and then the members of that group can, you know, hopefully win the broader movement around them. And I, them I mean, on, you can, on, you on can see it in, basis. So, so some, something like new unionism in, in England was, you know, had, I suppose, at, at its core, had a group of socially. Yeah, you know, they, so they weren't organised particularly in one organisation, certainly not a kind of like Bolshevik model organisation, but they were a network of kind of politicised radical yeah. or revolutionary socialists who had kind of consciously chosen that the thing they were going to do was organise among yes. among what were termed unskilled workers. So it's not obviously many, many differences, but a similar kind of no, absolutely. force at the centre of it. And, and and a key commonality is sort of that kind of that element of voluntarism, basically. Like that that group of people, that core, just making a conscious decision we're gonna we're gonna try and catalyze this struggle, mm. and, and and we're gonna see it through. Mm. Um, and I think that's uh, that's something we've kind of alluded to a little bit in previous episodes of the podcast, and we've 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 kind of talked to you know uh, uh, about the McDonald strike, for example, having something of that mm. sort of voluntaristic provenance in that Baker's Union activists just kind of decided, decided to do like, it. have a go at it. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I think you know much more of that is needed throughout the whole late movement of people just finding places to start fires and yeah. sort of seeing it through. Yeah. So they've had their first strike, they've had their first skirmish with, with the bosses. How does it kind of develop from there throughout 1934? Well, well in response to the, that first strike in February, the bosses make an offer, which sort of in, in, in brief and somewhat oversimplified summary is that um, if the union can win a, like a recognition ballot effectively organised via um, a regional labour board, 
which was an initiative. That was something that FDR. That's right. It's an initiative of Franklin D. Roosevelt's administration. Um, It's a sort of New Deal social partnership type initiative. Um, So if the union can win a a recognition ballot via this regional labour board, then the employers agree that they'll negotiate a wage settlement via the board, not in direct negotiation with the union, but via the board in a way that um, I guess you know, unions today might negotiate something via ACAS, mm. might, be a good, might be a good way of thinking of that. So um, there is some de- debate in the union about whether to accept this, and the, 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 the CLA members argue against accepting it, but um, uh, it, 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 the deal is accepted. Um, and that, that's a, another really excellent um, sort of episode in the book, is uh, Dobbs relating Miles Dunn's speech at, at the meeting about um, why, they should, why they should fight on. Interesting parallels with the UCU dispute there, mm. um, which we mentioned earlier. Um, but the deal is accepted, and Dobbs does acknowledge that for most workers, um, it was felt as a it was felt as a as a victory. Um, uh, he, he writes, for the first time in many years, a strike had been won in Minneapolis. Electrified by the victory, union members throughout the city gained self confidence, and thousands of unorganized workers lifted their eyes to the union movement um, with a new sense of hope. Um, so off the back of the strike, the union launches a mass organisation drive. As I mentioned before, by April, membership is up to 3,000. Um, and the militant leadership of Local 574, which in the aftermath of the February strike has kind of effectively sort of taken over the union in formal terms, winning key working majorities on its on its key committees, they create a democratic strike committee, which as the sort of year and the disputes progress, becomes the effective sovereign leadership of the events that would unfold. Um, as part of this organising drive, the union draws up additional demands um, based on issues that the workers, the new members that they're drawing into the union, are raising in the workplace. Um, and on the 30th of April 1934, they issue a kind of charter demanding things like shorter hours, pay increases and union recognition to negotiate future wage settlements. So again, um, the dynamic there is about um, seeking to make offensive demands. Um, turning outwards, drawing in new members on the basis of saying, look, yeah, we're having a fight with the employer. What, what are the issues you want to fight on? Come in. The, the, the union is your tool to um, have a pop at your boss. Um, and on the 15th of May, at a mass meeting, uh, union reps report the employer's refusal to negotiate on this charter. A motion to strike is proposed. It passes overwhelmingly. And the second uh, great strike of 1934 uh, begins. Well, it's an interesting uh, point that I suppose that like winning the idea that sort of winning a partial victory is treated by these guys, I guess, as, as like a step towards something else. Yeah. Rather than you win a partial victory and you kind of think, oh, we did all right there, back to work. Yeah. That's that sort of thing. You know? No, absolutely, and and again, I think there are really important resonances for for. Uh, our own experiences here, given that we exist in a labour movement where partial in, victories appear to be phenomenal on the like well in, in comparison to I, I mean, to what's gone on in the last thirty odd years. Sure, I mean that's definitely true. But I was going to say that that you know we've got a culture where it's pretty normal if in the course of a dispute, if the employer agrees to further negotiations, it's pretty normal that the union leadership will like suspend strikes for that yeah. like nothing's yeah. been won no concessions have been made all that's happened is an employer has agreed to negotiate which they should have been doing which anyway. they should have been doing anyway yeah. and in the negotiations they'll probably just say bugger off yeah but there's a culture of calling off strikes for that yeah 
and this, a sign of good faith. We'll and, and, and this yeah. is this is the kind of bang opposite of that of like, um, uh, you know, although there there was a vote to um, accept the offer in the February strike and the February strike was ended. That wasn't used as a sort of signal for a period of peace or settling down. It was used as a launch pad yeah. Um, yeah. to to um, launch the next dispute, mm. basically, um, which which they do with a greatly expanded horizons, whereas the February strike is focused on the coal industry and, and Teamsters in the coal industry. Coming off the back of the February strike, they launch a huge organising drive that spreads out into um, t- Teamsters and sort of associated jobs throughout the whole city. And they draw in a huge number of workers, um, including taxi drivers, so basically anyone connected to kind of driving, driving things, driving trucks, ancillary work connected to driving trucks, you know, loading things on and off trucks, they're, they're bringing them all in. Which it, and, and again, uh, to repeat, I think probably the best way of understanding this, although it's not a direct analogy, but the best way of understanding it for our situation is that it, it would be like a union launching an organising drive in the kind of logistics centre. Mm. So organising supermarket workers, um you know, shop floor workers in Sainsbury's and Sainsbury's delivery drivers and people who work in Sainsbury's warehouses, uh, you know, and... and, and tre- treating that supply chain as, as a single industry. Yeah, and get, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so there's a great deal of other preparatory work that um, that goes on, that, that's gone on throughout March and April, leading up to the May strike, which is maybe worth mentioning um, as well. Um so I'll, I'll perhaps talk about three aspects of that preparatory work. Firstly, the links made with unemployed workers and um, farmers' organisations. Secondly, the women's auxiliary. And then thirdly, the attitude that's developed towards the trade union officialdom. Um, so th- there were 30,000 unemployed workers in Minneapolis. So that's a pretty significant proportion in a city of less than 500,000. And there was a fear that they'd be used as a scab workforce to break the strike. Um, so to counter this prospect local 574 establishes an an unemployed workers campaign which undertakes direct political campaigning for for public relief i guess what we would call like welfare benefits um dobbs puts it like this he says this put direct union weight on the side of the unemployed and helped cement the desired alliance leaders of the unemployed were consulted in shaping the union's plans for picketing an act that gave assurance that they were not to be treated like country cousins um, and Local 574 also makes links with farmers' organisations, radical farmers' organisations, in a bid to stop farmers and their trucks being brought into the city and, and use the scab labour to break the strike. Um, so one thing that that sort of indicates for me is, is how it's possible for a strike to really outgrow the um, ostensible boundaries of the immediate economic relationship between the, the workers involved and their employers. And there's been some debate um, in, in some quarters of the, the, the left and the labour movement about the, the concept of the social strike, um, which uh, I think has a sort of, you know, you ask 10 people what it is and you'll get 10 different answers. But for me, if that concept has any kind of sort of radical potential or value, it's in this kind of stuff. It's in the idea of a strike um, growing out of, a, a, of an industrial conflict between a particular set of workers and a particular set of employers and, and sort of socialising itself by drawing in other elements from the wider working class community and, and looking at the ways that strike is going to impact the wider community and looking at ways that you know, other kind of elements and forces within the working class 
can can be brought in to sort of support the strike and 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 to sort of use it to 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 further their own struggles. So um, that w- I mean, we saw a little bit of an example of kind of what I think Daniel's talking about the other day. Now it's not exactly the same, and it's one isolated incident. But uh, the other day on a picture house central picket line, we saw um, a woman strike march come down and join the picket line. And it was a really quite an inspiring moment of like, you've got these workers on a picket line who obviously there is, there are, it was, uh, there are, you know, feminist issues happening here. Like a lot of the workers in picture house are female. A lot of them you know, as well as being workers are also caregivers and things like that. They're trying to support families uh, on on not a living wage. There is, there's loads of stuff um, that, that kind of links the idea of, of the women's strike to the picket line. And yeah, they came down and they showed their solidarity and it was absolutely amazing. Like we, we basically shut down the outside of, of uh, Picture House Central. You, you couldn't mm. move. There were so many people there. So Yeah, definitely. So, you know, I mean, obviously in any strike, any of us should be looking to kind of make alliances and find ways to mobilise people to support the dispute. But I think what's, what's shown, at least in sort of microcosmic potential in the example Ellie's talking about and in, in the Minneapolis teams to strike in quite a spectacular way is, is the way in which a strike ca- can really take on a genuinely social character in the sense of becoming, you know, not, not and, and not by chance either, but by, by conscious effort of the, the people at its centre in its leadership can, can take on a social character by, by, by becoming a movement of the whole working class mm. in a given area, in this case a city, mm. r- rather than just um, a, a kind of economic conflict between um, a group of workers and, and their employer. And the stuff Ellie's talking about as well segues quite nicely into the second thing I wanted to mention, which was the formation of the women's auxiliary. So um, Dobbs talked about it in this way. He said, the aim would be to draw in wives, girlfriends, sisters and mothers of union members Instead of having their morale corroded by financial difficulties they would face during the strike, they would be drawn into the thick of battle where they could u- learn unionism through first-hand participation. Now, the industries we're talking about here and the industries in which these strikes take place were pretty much entirely male-dominated, um, hence the, quote, auxiliary, unquote, role of women in the strike rather than, you know, women workers being, being sort of directly involved as immediate participants. Uh, there are some gendered assumptions at, at, at work there which maybe don't apply so much if you work in a more gender diverse industry um, but I think this is still a, 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 an important model for how strikes can be broadened out as I say socialised if you will and, and how wider working class communities can be drawn into supporting them and playing a direct role in them and of course the immediate comparison that I imagine will have been um, brought to mind for a lot of listeners by, by the story of the women's auxiliary in the Minneapolis teams to strike is the role of women against pit closures mm-hmm. in the miners' strike. Um, and then finally, the, the kind of third element, sort of preparatory element I wanted to mention was the attitude that the, the leadership and activists in Local 574 developed to the officialdom, what, what we might call the bureaucracy, both of their own union and of the wider labour movement. Um, as Dobbs put it, the indicated tactic was to aim the workers' fire straight at the employers and catch the union bureaucrats in the middle. <laughs> if they didn't figuratively obviously if they and, and I mean it's it's important to say figuratively because as we'll hear later this <laughs> there's there, there, yeah, there, there, there are some there are some issues of, of genuine firefighting um 
sorry, to, to aim the workers' fire straight at the employers and catch the union bureaucrats in the middle, figuratively. If they didn't react positively, they would stand discredited. Um, so before the May strike begins, significant efforts are made to get the Central Labour Union, which I guess is best understood as the equivalent of a trades council, um, to issue a statement of support for Local 574's charter that they're, that they're demanding that, that, that the employers sort of um, acquiesce to, which ties in the more conservative elements of the American Federation of Labour, which, which was a deeply conservative um, organisation, some of the affiliates of which were kind of craftist, racist, operated exclusionary membership policies, barring women workers or black workers from joining. Um, so it was a very conservative labour movement. But rather than just saying, fuck them, you know, they're not going to support us, we're just going to go our own way, they kind of, they sort of encircled them. Um, you know, without ever losing a sense of what they represented, what the bureaucracy represented as a social element and what they represented politically. But they kind of encircled them and made it, but in doing so, sort of made it impossible for them to sabotage the strike, even though yeah. that's what a lot of them would have wanted to do. So the uh, second strike begins on May the 16th and, it, and is run from a, a permanent strike headquarters in the city centre. And the, the picketing tactics pioneered in the February strike are used again and expanded supported by a vast network of communications and intelligence that allows them to be directed all under the democratic supervision of the strike committee and elected picket captains to where they're most needed. After just two days of the May strike, trucking in Minneapolis was effectively paralysed. Nothing's moving. Um, as we mentioned, while the February strike focused on the coal yards, the May strike had broadened out to, to other industries and workers connected with, um, with trucking. And as I said... For a modern equivalent, probably best to think about a strike across the logistics sector involving, you know, supermarket and, and warehouse workers. And if you think about the economic impact that that would have if, if a strike like that took place in modern Britain, that's what we're talking about here on, on, on a citywide scale. That's what the Minneapolis teams to strike represented. And again, just to remind everyone, this is being led by a union branch that less than a year previously had 75 members. The Citizens Alliance, who we mentioned earlier, the kind of villains of the piece, they respond by organising kind of anti-picket pickets of their own, um, armed squads who went to help the police um, break up picket lines. Um, on Saturday, May the 19th, unarmed picketers are savagely attacked by police officers aided by armed scabs and Citizens Alliance goons and several strikers are hospitalised. The events of May the 19th prompted the, strike, uh, prom prompted the strike to take the decision to defend itself. So on Monday the 21st of May, a police charge attempts to break up pickets blocking scab trucks, but instead of meeting unarmed strikers, they're met by 600 strikers and strike supporters, many of them armed with sticks and clubs who'd been waiting in a nearby hall. And that confrontation leads to 30 police, scabs and Citizens Alliance goons being hospitalised, and the following day sees another pitched battle between strikers and the cops, with strikers um, driving back um, around 1,500 police. So, again, it's maybe a bit difficult for us certainly for, for, for younger people who've grown up in the generation since the miners strike to imagine anything like this happening mm. a strike taking on such an acute character mm -hmm. um so you know such an acute character of kind of class conflict but you know that that's what we're talking about here and if you know anything about the history of the miners strike there's a lot of parallels between the miners strike and the minneapolis teams to strike you know uh, on a sort of citywide scale. And I suppose, you know, that that's what happens when a strike becomes so effective that it does paralyse the economy and the stakes yeah. get that high. And I think that, I mean, the so the issue of like 
the labour movement's relationship to the police, I think we're going to cover in more detail, more generally, mm-hmm. maybe with reference to the British miners' strike in, in a future episode. It's it's like a big, it's, it's a hu- huge, huge issue to, to talk about. Yeah, the um, TL slash DR version is um, the police are not on our side and <laughs> can never be on our side and will never be on our side and they are our enemy. Um, <laughs> just to just to sort of telegraph that for a future episode. ACAB. <laughs> um, but that's absolutely that's absolutely right, Ed. That is what happens when a strike kind of takes on that character. Um, and the strike becomes so powerful that, that Dobbs refers to a situation of dual power, which is a term used in the in kind of Marxist parlance to describe a scenario in which workers' organisations are directly vying with the institutions of capitalism and the capitalist state for control over society. When a strike reaches a high pitch as it did in Minneapolis in 1934, as it, as it did during the miners' strike. It poses questions way, way beyond its own immediate economic dynamics um, and, and uh, the, the immediate sort of demands of the strike. It poses the question fundamentally of whose interests should, should rule society, the, you know, those of people, those of profit, which class should be in power, if you like. And while, while we should never lose sight of the immediate demands of any dispute, and while the Teamsters certainly never did lose sight of the immediate industrial demands they were posing around wages and union recognition and, sh- and so on. I think that's something else we can learn from this, that we should always be looking for ways to pose those bigger questions in our own struggles, even when they start off as being focused on smaller scale issues. So on Friday the 25th of May, um, an offer is presented to union members. That offer includes pay increases, as well as further negotiations of pay to come, and the establishment of an arbitration board via which Local 574 could negotiate directly with employees in the industry and this goes some way not the whole way but some way to achieving the demand of union recognition which as I say had been central throughout in the book Dobbs openly accepts that the offer represents a compromise rather than a total victory um, but it is acknowledged as a step forwards and is accepted and the strike ends um, for, for, for all the unions membership except for the taxi drivers interestingly who kind of have their own set of demands and have a little kind of side strike um, which is related in the book. Um, by the end of May, Local 574 has 7,000 members. So um, that's that's a pretty phenomenal increase from having 75 at the end of 1933. Um, they vote to create full-time organiser posts and Dobbs, the Dunn brothers and Carl Scogland are elected to fill them. But very significantly, they are paid only $25 a week, which is the average wage of a truck driver at the time. That's much less than union officials, full-time union officials had previously earned and much less than they earned in other bits of the IBT. And that's something we might want to talk about. That's something listeners might want to discuss. What are the resonances of that for our own experiences where, you know, with the best will in the world, it is simply the case that the amount of money that senior officials, certainly general secretaries, but other senior officials in pretty much every union, including, you know, sort of more, more, more radical and militant ones like, like mine, the RMT, the amount of money that they earn and the lifestyle they're afforded, in material terms at least, gives them a lifestyle closer to that of the bosses mm-hmm. than it does to most of the members of their own unions. Um, and, and it's certainly been a, a sort of traditional demand of the rank and file left um, throughout labour movements uh, around the world, really, that the pay of... Uh, full-time officials sh- should be reflective in some way of the, the, the amount of money that union members are earning. And it's significant politically, I think, that um, the CLA members in, in the leadership of Local 574 make a conscious decision that when they get elected to these full-time posts, 
they're going to do that. Um, so the Citizens Alliance launches a, a, a vicious counter-offensive against the Union in the aftermath of the May strike, um, refusing to recognise its right to negotiate on behalf of any workers who are not directly involved in loading and unloading trucks, which is a direct attempt to break the Union by excluding a section of its membership from collective agreements. So they're attacking... They're, um, people might think back to our episode on industrial unionism. There's definitely some kind of industrial unionist versus craft unionist dynamics here. And it's interesting that the basis on which the Citizens Alliance choose to make their counteroffensive in May is to sort of to try and break the union back to being a craft union mm. effectively and say you're only allowed to negotiate for people in these grades or who do these jobs rather than um, all workers in the industry. Um, this is accompanied by a relentless campaign of scaremongering in the press, um, denouncing the leaders of Local 574 as, quote, Trotsky communists, unquote, um, which, of course, they were, but um, uh, in, 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 in the kind of, in the sort of atmosphere and, and in a city in which the Citizens Alliance still has a lot of power, you know, this is, it's a kind of serious thing for, for this propaganda campaign to be launched. And the leadership of Local 574 and the rank and file membership, they can see the writings on the wall and they know that they're going to have to take further action to consolidate the gains they've made um, in the May strike. So again, that sort of harks back to the point we were making previously about not not sort of resting on your laurels. Um, so it's in this period of preparation for a, a, a future strike that on the 25th of June, the newspaper The Organiser is launched. And it's a really key aspect um, of the rest of the story. It's launched as the, fir- as the official publication of the, the, of the local and the first daily strike newspaper in American labour history. Um, I won't say more about that there except these two things. One is that um, CLA activists from elsewhere um, are, are, are in Minneapolis in this period and, and part of what they do is really quite important um, socialist and labour movement journalism helping with the organiser, um, including um, James Cannon and, and Matt Shackman, who are, who are two personal heroes of mine. And the other thing I'll say about the organiser, many of its copies are available on the internet, and if you read it in comparison with the house magazines of any uh, trade union today, um, contemporary labour movement publications do not come off well. <laughs> <laughs> um, so on the 6th of July, um, the union organises a mass protest throughout the city, culminating in a rally attended by 12,000 people. And I'll quote here from the speech that Miles Dunn gave to that rally. Um, he says... They have now raised, he's talking about the Citizens Alliance and the bosses, they have now raised the red issue and accused us of being reds and radicals, of wanting to substitute a new form of government. And I say to you here, frankly, when a system of society exists that allows employers in Minneapolis to wax fat on the misery and starvation and degradation of the many, it is time that that system is changed. It is high time that the workers take this from their hands. And there's maybe a little bit of a lesson for us there in uh, in a period where kind of red baiting is sort of back in the press. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how you respond to it. You know, you don't dissemble and say, no, look, actually, we're really moderate and we've got all these moderate figures lined up to tell you how moderate our policies actually are. You say, no, fuck you. Yes, we are reds and radicals. And yes, we do want to overthrow your system. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that rally passes a resolution um, that sort of adds further demands to the, to the charter and gives the bosses a deadline to concede them. And again, like just in terms of basic sort of industrial strategy stuff, I think this is really important. Like it's a union saying to an employer or a group of employers, these are our demands. This is your deadline to meet our demands. And if you don't meet them, we're, we're going to fuck up production. We're going on strike. Mm. You know, it's crudely, it's what 
in the kind of right wing imaginary is called like holding the employer to ransom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but you know, I don't have a problem with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, I fully endorse it. More of it, if anything. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. It's 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 they're constantly looking for ways to get on the front foot. You know, they're not being reactive. They don't see the union. Look, the trade union form is in the last analysis fundamentally a self-defensive mechanism. But that doesn't mean that every union struggle has to be about waiting for the bosses to do something that you, that you then try and fend off. Mm. You can use it in an offensive way. And, and for me, the Minneapolis teams to strike is, is, is one of the classic examples of, of, of how trade unionism can be conducted as a sort of um, offensive struggle. Um, so uh, a deadline is given to the bosses. The deadline is, is not met, uh, unsurprisingly. And uh, the third strike of 1934 um, is called. Um, on, on the 20th of July, uh, the third full day of that strike, um, the police opened fire on a group of strikers. Um, 67 people were injured and, and two killed in an event that became known as Bloody Friday. Um, rather than breaking the strike's resolve, it strengthened it. 25,000 people marched in a funeral parade for the murdered workers. Um, Ed mentioned earlier that we're going to come back to and look at the, the kind of the, the role of the state, the question of the sort of institutional character of the police in relation to workers' struggles in a future episode. So um, I won't say more about that here except to sort of reiterate the point Ed made that the, the role of the police as a social force is perhaps demonstrated most clearly in, in times of pitched class struggle like this. So, so over the next month, the strike turns into a, a bitter war of attrition. On the 26th of July, martial law is declared and the National Guard um, is moved into the city. Um, one aspect we haven't really talked about, but um, I'd urge everyone to, to read the book, is, is the question of how the strike related to sort of official politics and the role of the governor, mm-hmm. Floyd Olson. Mm-hmm. Because wasn't there a sort of Labour Party? In yeah, so, so he, was, he was the candidate Farmers of... Farmers Labour Party. That's right, he was the candidate of, a, of, of the Farmer Labour Party, which is a very quite a weird historical formation which th- there are farmer labor parties that still exist in america today they're kind of they're sort of adjuncts of the democratic party now um don't particularly have time to go into that ex- except to say that i think their their tactics towards him um were informed by their tactics towards the sort of wide delayed movement bureaucracy they were very astute they were about kind of in trying to sort of encircle him mm-hmm. um, and 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 make it impossible for him to um sabotage the strike um I mean, you know, it, it, it is his governorship that's called, that's, that, that institutes martial law on the 26th of July. Um, there's no doubt about that. So there's, you know, there's no sense in which he was a sort of reliable or consistent ally for the strike. But there's some, there is some interesting stuff there about how you relate to um, reformist politicians is the wrong word because he's, you know, he's not, he's not coming out of the kind of reformist social democratic tradition in the, the sense kind of that we progress- understand it. Progressive. Yeah, progressive or sort of populist yeah. um, politicians. So, so martial law is declared, the National Guard moves into the city and the intervention of the National Guard does restore some functioning in the trucking industry. Um, uh, and the National Guard also moves specifically against the Union and its leadership. Many of them are arrested and imprisoned. The strike headquarters is even briefly seized by the military on the 1st of August and other Union buildings throughout the city were also raided. Perhaps a note there that, you know, even in... <laughs> You know, uh, uh, Minneapolis, a town with a, a, a weak and demoralised labour movement. There's, there's an actual, it, there's an infrastructure of of the labour movement to be raided. Mm. You know, which doesn't exist at all really in in our context today. You know, a few a few places around the country have labour clubs and things like yeah. that, but there's there's very little like physical labour movement infrastructure. But that was important in this strike. The use of union buildings, union halls to run strike headquarters. Mm-hmm. 
um, uh, and the establishment of the strike's own infrastructure. That, for example, they established a field hospital to treat injured pickets, and they did that because they knew that if um, pickets went to sort of you know regular hospitals. They'd be arrested. They'd be arrested. Yeah. 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 They'd go in in an ambulance, come out in a police car. Yeah. I mean, there were actually incidents yeah, that of happened. that happening. Yeah, that happened. Like, that, that, that mm. happened. So, again, that harks back to kind of Dobbs's thing about dual power. Mm. That, that this is about the labour, the workers' movement, sort of establishing its own, you know, all proportions guarded in what I'm about to say, but almost its own kind of proto, not state, but like proto social infrastructure. Yeah. Um, yeah. That you know that that, that sort of point the way to how the, our class could rule basically mm-hmm. how our class could, could, could run society um, so the, the strike's been going on May, June, July martial law has been declared the National Guard has moved against the union leadership the union leaders have spent some time in prison and you might think that all of this would just lead to people getting really demoralised and thinking you know look we're going to be crushed there's, there's no point in carrying on that isn't what happened why didn't that happen? Well, I think the existence of regular democratic mass meetings, not just rallies where people gave tub-thumping speeches about why you should carry on doing what you're doing, but democratic mass meetings where people could come and discuss and debate and put proposals and votes were taken about the direction of the strike. And again, the CLA were, were key in this, in sort of offering a political leadership, not in a commandist or manipulative way, saying do this because we're telling you to do it, but but winning ideological hegemony for what they're arguing for through the democratic structures that had been established and the social infrastructure around the strike that, that we talked about in which the role of the women's auxiliary is particularly integral and the role of the organiser, the newspaper, as a daily source of news and discussion. All of that was essential to preserving the resolve and the termination of the workers. Um, other unions helped sustain the strike. There was solid. There were solidarity strikes from from other unions in the construction industry, particularly, and other unions helped sustain the strike with significant donations to finance strike pay. Another lesson I think we should think about for our own situation. Yeah. Um, st- st- strike pay has become it's actually become a little bit more common in the last couple of years that u- unions are getting serious about the necessity to use hardship payments to, to finance sustained action. That was done absolutely in in this case. All of this meant that the strike didn't collapse despite the best efforts of the bosses and of the state. And a rally on the 6th of August, several months into the third strike, attracted 40,000 people. Remember, Minneapolis has a population of less than 500,000. Mm-hmm. So you want to scale that up to a city the size of the size of London. That is an absolutely monster rally. Um, eventually, on the 21st of August, federal mediators propose a new settlement that effectively meets the union's demands for industry-wide recognition and collective bargaining rights for all workers. New increased minimum wages for all workers were to be introduced. Again, it didn't meet all of the union's demands, but it met enough of them for um, the, the leadership of the branch to recommend acceptance and at a mass meeting that same evening. And that's, a, that's an interesting element as well, that all of this is done at kind of incredible speed. Mm-hmm. You know, meetings are convened at very short notice. Obviously, there's a, it's at a high pitch. There's a high level of mobilisation. People are kind of in the state of mind where they'd be prepared to come to a meeting at very short notice. And yes, that does have to be built up. But there's such a degree of inertia you often find in the laid movement. You know, it takes months for anything to happen. Some of that's imposed on us by like legal restrictions in terms of balloting law. But some of it's kind of self-imposed. And I think the speed at which uh, Local 574 conducted its business is, is, um, can, can be instructive for us. A mass meeting is held that same evening, 21st of August. Union members vote to end the strike. Local 574 
um, has won. So that's the end of the story as it's told in the book Teams the Rebellion. And I want to just conclude by summarising what I think are the key lessons and, and why I think this strike is so important. Firstly, I think it shows us that unions grow most spectacularly when we take the offensive, when we're ambitious and when we refuse to narrow our horizons. I think it contains vital, absolutely vital lessons about the role of the state, the police and the military, um, and show that when it really comes to the crunch, and in a lot of situations, even quite a bit before it comes to the crunch, these institutions are not on our side. And I think that's of particular relevance, um, immediate relevance now, when there's a debate in the Labour movement and then in the Labour Party about what Labour should be saying about the police and policing. Um, it emphasises the necessity of democratic organisation and of attempting to spread a strike's political impact and its effectiveness by socialising it, by, by widening it out, by drawing in other sections of the working class. And finally, on a sort of, guess what you might call a kind of spiritual level, um, it's, it's a story that enjoins us not to lose heart and to believe that victories are possible even when conditions seem most adverse um, or, or when the struggle um, is at its, its lowest ebb. Um, uh, we mentioned in our last episode, and I'll just wrap up on this, that um, the Finsbury Park branch of the RMT was running a, a, a kind of educational session about, about this book and about um, the strike, which, which I ended up kind of doing the lead off at. So if the, anyone who's listening who was, who was at that session, the presentation as I've given it today is basically a rerun of that so apologies for you haven't heard it twice <laughs> they, they um, would have figured that out by now <laughs> <laughs> well I, I mean who, who yeah they probably would you might um, uh, so um, I just wanted to kind of mention that really um, uh, that's not I'm not in the Finsbury Park branch I'm in the Bakerloo line branch so thanks to the activists in, in Finsbury Park branch that um, organised that and put that on um, and, and I would encourage um, other uh Union activists, um, worker activists around the country, if you want to read the story of a strike that is not only replete with very immediate and direct lessons, and we, we often talk about, you know, the, what are the lessons of this and that, and it's sort of meant in a kind of abstract way, um, in, a sort of gr in a sort of broad historical sense. And some of the lessons here are of that type, you know, don't give up is a pretty sort of broad lesson. But a lot of it is actually about the meat of, yeah, exactly. of organising and exactly. the, the, yeah. the, the, the A lot of the lessons in, in this strike are, are, are really mm. kind of um, nuts and bolts stuff yeah. about how you organise in the workplace, how you organise yeah. in a union and how you organise a strike. And, and I think for that reason, perhaps for that reason, um, it is a book, I think, to be read as a group, mm -hmm. as part of a reading group, so that yeah. you can actually discuss the sort of the sort of tactical questions and the, yeah. the, that sort of stuff. Yeah, I I really agree with that. But also, just on on another note, and that's this is not to do down at all what the boys have said. I agree with every word they said. Uh, but due to the nature of how a podcast works and how we have to go through something that's incredibly rich and incredibly full of stuff very very quickly and give you a broad overview we've almost lost a little bit of the actual magic of this book and just in terms just in terms of reading the book right as much as i love to rip the piss out of daniel this <laughs> like, i really do this book has had quite a profound effect on me and it was one of the first books i read when i was seriously getting into thinking about left-wing politics and um just as, as a book, it's it's brilliant. Uh, like, Farrah Dobbs can obviously really write. It's funny, it's moving, like, it's packed so full of information, but it's also so accessible and so personal. Um, so when I was first reading this book, 
I was uh, I was reading it and I was crying so violently on the tube that like strangers were coming over to comfort me. <laughs> and then I embarrassingly had to admit to them that I was just really, really moved by the book I was reading. <laughs> but you know, it, it, it's a magical book to read. It's not just a how-to guide. It's also a beautiful piece of work in and of itself. So yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. And you know, um, I would really very strongly encourage all of our listeners to read it We'll put a link um, in the episode description to where you can buy it. Um, if you want something that's a little bit more kind of gateway, a kind of bite-sized introduction, um, Brian Palmer, who's an American um, sort of socialist and labour historian, wrote a good article in, in Jacobin magazine a few years ago called Red Teamsters, which summarises not just the 1934 strikes, but kind of what happened to the to, to, to the local from then and their ongoing mm. tradition of radicalism, some of which... As we said earlier, we've touched on in our episode about trade unions against fascism, and, and that's kind of a story in itself. And the, the book Teams to Rebellion is one of a, a quadrilogy of books that, I think that's the right word, isn't it? That, um, <laughs> there's four, there's of, four of them. <laughs> um, uh, of books that, that Farrell Dobbs wrote about um, the, the development of the local and kind of what happened to it after the strike, which, which is a very interesting um, story in itself. But um, I think we'll leave the story of Teams to Rebellion uh, there for today. Um, if you are um, interested in running a, a, a reading group or, a, or a, a presentation or a talk about it in, in your union branch, do get in touch with us. We're more than happy to send you resources. There are some study guides available. Um, if you want someone from Labour Days to come and speak about it, we'd be totally happy to do that. Ed did mention that we're looking for ways to kind of take the podcast into the real world a little bit more. Um, but if you want to, if you if you want to run any kind of event related to this book and this strike or um, anything else we've talked about. or anything else we've talked about in any of our episodes and um, please do get in touch via one of our social media platforms and we'd be happy to help out in any way we can thanks for that daniel uh, thanks for the story of the 1934 minneapolis teams to strike strikes um, strikes i hope you realize that now you are barred from suggesting any more content for the podcast for another oh, 12 no. months was that was, was that the arrangement was that, that was, the deal it was the deal bloody small print eh um, it's worth mentioning, I think, um, just to wrap up, that uh, people might have heard of the Teamsters, certainly people in this country might have heard of the Teamsters as an example of a kind of corrupt mafia union in America. And obviously for, for decades there was a um, very close relationship between the Jimmy Hoffa leadership yeah. and organised crime. Although it is worth saying that the leadership of the IBT during this period, uh, one of the other kind of villains of the book is the, 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 the sort of leader of the Central Union, Daniel Tobin, who manages to run the union in a pretty awful and corrupt way, uh, even without the help But while there is that side of the history of the Teamsters Union, the, uh, the, the rank and file tradition uh, continues to this day uh, with a network called Teamsters for a Democratic Union. Um, and a couple of years back, uh, their candidate for president of the union came very, very close to beating uh, Jimmy Hoffa's son for the presidency. So it's a very, very strong rank and file tradition uh, in the IBT as well. Um, TDU.org is the website of uh, the Teamsters for a Democratic Union if you want to check that out. Uh, just lastly, um, our friends in the Bakers Union are balloting six McDonald's stores for another round of the Merck strike. So uh, good luck to them. Uh, keep an eye out for that and uh, we'll see you next time.
Labor Days was presented by Ellie Clark, Ed Mustill and Daniel Randall. The producer was Liam McNulty, with additional research provided by Holly Smith. Follow Labor Days on Twitter at Labor underscore Days and search for Labor Days on Facebook. Remember to leave us a rating and a review on iTunes and all your other favourite podcast platforms.